In the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into this one school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school, traditionally filled with black and brown students, after a number of white families arrive. And then, not satisfied she fully understood what she was seeing, she went all the way back to the founding of the school in the 1960s, and then up to the present day again. Eventually, Hannah realized she could put a name to what was getting in the way of making the school better all these years. White parents, nice white parents, is a fascinating listen that's deeply relevant today. It's made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, same people who made the hit podcast Serial and S-Town. All episodes are now available wherever you do get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. We're proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University in Washington. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the podcast. We're happy to be part of your weekend listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, you remember six months ago, we talked to Jim and Deb Fallows, America's most prolific public intellectuals, about their experiences flying around the country, getting to know communities and citizens, and really concluding that the polarization that we see in Washington is not reflected in many of those communities. Deb is going to join us in a few moments, but first, first let's talk to Jim about a very important piece in this week's Atlantic that he wrote about the press falling into the same trap as four years ago and being manipulated by Donald Trump. Jim, first of all, thanks for joining us. Um, Al, it's a pleasure to join you and James again. Well, terrific. You know, that piece really was compelling. And this is a president who is clueless or insensitive in the p- pandemic, ignorant about most policies, rants about fake news, and yet he has an uncanny ability to exploit the weakness of the media. How and why? I think the, the, the case I tried to make is one that both of you are well familiar with over the decades. You know, Alan, your, your role as journalist and James as practitioner which is that there are certain proprieties that even our non-propriety institution, the press, normally observes uh, that just are a real handicap when comes when it comes to Donald Trump. And the main one is the assumption that people in the media have had that politicians are dealing more or less in good faith. I say more or less because every politician, every time has tried to put the best face on things and to minimize things that put him or her in a bad light and emphasize those that put put them in a, in a good light. But the press has been in a way like um, lawyers in the courtroom, assuming there's an opposing party, but they'll all be more or less bound by uh, you know demonstrable truth. When it comes to Trump, we have somebody who simply is not uh, bound by any sense of that he should tell the truth. And so when the press does what it would with other politicians, which is giving a politician the benefit of the doubt, that he's basically trying to tell the truth rather than lying, that he'll only lie when it's useful or uh, would be inconvenient not to, the press is able to get just um, used uh, by, by Donald Trump. And I, so that was essentially my, my point was to say, things that are part of the journalistic culture, probably in the post-World War II era onward, are being exploited by Trump almost in the way that Robert Mueller's, uh, Mueller's um, belief that there'd be a kind of fair play was exploited by Trump and Bill Barr. And, and Jim, one of those uh, characteristics that you uh, allude to is this the sense of even-headedness. You know, we were all taught, you know, you got to present both sides. Uh, and uh, there, uh, today, this this is more like a false uh, a false equivalency uh, uh, with, with 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 Trump. I mean, we don't give equal time to mothers for drunk driving, uh, which I know is a crude analogy. But this sense of even-handedness uh, really gives Trump a tremendous advantage. 
It, it does. And I think there was a, a story I, I quoted from uh, from AP, which illustrated it and which, again, was conventions that would have made sense a decade ago or two decades ago, where a story was talking about how there were these two different perspectives of America that were being presented on the, the, the campaign trail. One was said on the campaign trail with President Donald Trump, the pandemic is largely over. The economy is roaring back and murderous mobs are infiltrating America's suburbs with Democrat Joe Biden, the pandemic is raging, the economy isn't lifting the working class, and systemic racism threatens black lives around America. And then he went on to say, the first week of the fall sprint to election day crystallized dizzyingly different versions of reality. And I tried to say one of those versions of reality, namely Biden's, was within the realms of normal political emphasis and exaggeration, if you will, and the other just was false. You know, the pandemic isn't over. There are not roving mobs in the suburbs. Uh, the economy is not roaring back. And so handling things where, where you have something that's just not true requires a culture shift from, from our colleagues in the, in the media. You know, it sure does. And it's a different time with cable news and social media. But I just read Larry Ty's biography of Joe McCarthy. And I really had a sense of, my God, we've been there before. Tailgunner Joe used the same tactics. He'd make a phony charge. He never had a list of 205 card-carrying communists uh, in his pocket. Then he'd engage in a smear. But then he would move on right away for the next news cycle, knowing it wouldn't catch up. It worked for three or four years. And with social media and cable news being different than it was back then, it really is a very similar tactic to what uh, Trump does. I, I I agree, and I think the moving on that there are there are two parallels I'd mention. One is I haven't read that book, which I possess but haven't read yet. But I've read you know other McCarthy uh, chronicles over the years, and there was a real lag time for when his party, the Republican Party, uh, including Dwight Eisenhower, decided to confront him. And I see, think we see that in a really uh, sort of grotesque version now where the members of the GOP uh, Senate uh, majority, except for Mitt Romney with his one vote on, on impeachment, simply will not address things that you know they'd be all over like a thousand cheap suits if those were happening in any, any other administration. So you have the lack of party accountability. The other is the continuing to move on charge by charge by charge. Many of the things that you know, we are part of our business in the media is to report what happened just now. But there is a kind of distraction by Trump of if the pandemic news grinds on and becomes worse, if the economic news is small businesses are, are evaporating, it is easy to distract that with some new show, some new outrage, some new laser pointer dot that the uh, the kitty cat can can pounce on. I want to turn this over to James, but as far as the party is concerned, it's actually worse. Back then, there were at least a few a few more Republicans than just one. Margaret J. Smith, the senator from Vermont. I mean, today, other than Mitt Romney, they're all neighbors. But James, take over. So, so Jim, I'm from the political side, and you're, both of you are more from the journalistic side. This is something that strikes me. On the political side, we're held accountable. We lose the election. We have ultimate accountability. So let's go to 2016 with the horrendously overblown email story. And when I say horrendous, I mean horrendous. And then you had the New York Times, the principal press institution in the United States, saying a week before the election that the Russians were not trying to help Trump. Now, there's been no accountability. Nobody got fired over this. The New York Times has never written a, a piece saying we, we blew a major news story. We blew two major news stories. So how, how can we expect that anything's going to change when, when they make a mistake, they just move on? I, I remember I asked Ellen the clip, what are you all going to do when you find out this whitewater thing is nothing? She said, we won't do anything. We'll just go to the next story. And is there any way to hold the press accountable when they make something like the email story. I know Russians not trying to help Trump. I mean, it's, it's absurd. I, um, I agree. And this very question is one I've tried to get at for quite a long time. And just for perspective here, for people who may not have been obsessing over the media to quite the degree that all of us have, there have been times when 
the New York Times, which is the leading American news organization, and which I would argue in the realm of its coverage, if you think of business and technology and arts and global and climate and poverty and all sorts of things, has an ambition and a depth and a professionalism you won't find in any other organization maybe in the world. When it comes to its its framing of national politics, there are these cases where, where it goes in a certain direction and, and does not reckon with it. I, I'll use the, for the reckoning comparison, the Times was part of the WMD craze before the Iraq war. And there was some sort of formal reckoning with that afterwards. They had some, you know, commission inside the Times to say, how did we get this wrong? Uh, there was the, the the Jason Blair sort of fake Dateline episode a while before that. And there was internal accountability. For some reason, the Times simply has not been willing to deal publicly with with the the email obsession it had in the run up to the 2016 election, uh, you know, crystallized by the Saturday, 10 days before the election, the entire top half of the front page was stories about the emails uh, and Comey's investigation of them in a way that just was was a hundredfold any even the worst interpretation of their of how, how wrong they might have been. The Times, more or less around the same period, was getting rid of its public editor, uh, which also was supposed to be the, the internal accountability. James, I, I don't know why they have not dealt with this. And I view it as a major failing for this great institution. One other point, in terms of accountability, there's often a kind of perverse accountability for people in this business where as we're more and more attentive to what is getting attention online and with audience right this second, the signals are often perverse ones, thus cable news carrying Trump rallies, uh, you know, wall to wall through 2015 and 16 because they got more audience. So uh, your accountability question is a good and hard one that I can't really um, I, I could just say I agree that this is an issue. So in the, in, the, in the Woodward book, I think the most staggering thing in it is Dan Coates, who I think we could all agree is a really lifetime and a very, very conservative Republican. The man doesn't have a democratic sympathetic bone in his body. I, I don't think he does, but he was a director of national intelligence. And he said, I can't prove it, but everything that, that in, in essence, he said, I can't prove it, but everything points to the fact that he's working against the interests of the United States. Now, that Putin has something on him. That Putin had something on him. Yes. And, and of course, in, in, I know a lot of people in the media. I know the both of you. I know people all over. And I think most people believe that there's something really out of whack here. It, but no one, you know, if you, if you go to these fact-checking organizations, they're dying to say that, that Biden, you know, four Pinocchios or whatever the hell they get, you know, because he said that, uh, that Trump was going to destroy Social Security. Of course, he wanted to make the payroll tax cut permanent, which was the funding mechanism for Social Security, but they went out of their way to say, oh, no, that's not exactly true. You can't say that. And it looks like these guys sit by the, computer waiting to find something that they can put in for, for a Democrat. And I've, I've, I've observed that in my whole life in politics. They love to criticize Democrats. I mean, look at what they did to Bill Clinton. I mean, it's over a stupid, non-profitable land deal in Arkansas that turned out to be zero, less than zero. But no one, if you, you're covering World War II, you don't say, well, the, the enemy said this and we said that. And I mean, I think this is, I think most journalists think this is a, this guy is really doesn't have the, it, at times does not have the interest of the United States first and foremost, which is pretty staggering. Uh, so uh, there's a lot in what you're saying. Let me just give a sort of scattershot answer. I think that because most national journalists are Democrats, because uh, that's the kind of person who has always gone into the press. You know, media owners are different. They are structurally Republicans and they're structurally wealthy people. Uh, just to, for long, as long as there's been a press, people who have gone into it have been people who like to shake things up and they've been more sort of democratic or small liberal in their sentiments. Because of that, 
I think there's been this sense over the last few decades that you have to be, you have to make sure you're holding quote your own side to to appropriate account, and and it it's certainly more comfortable. And I know Al has been here too. It's more comfortable if you can say, well, there's fault on this side and there's fault on that side too. You like to think of yourself as the umpire or as the the referee or, or or whatever. So I think that's why there's this search for things that you can say, well. Uh, you know, Trump has never, ever criticized Vladimir Putin, but maybe Joe Biden exaggerated this point in his resume or, or, or something. Uh, the amazing thing to me is, is, again, if you think of the standards that made the the Hillary Clinton email story dominate the news in 2016, which were, was there any potential security risk from having the server in her house. And I believe there was never any demonstration of security risk. And you compare that with the director of national intelligence saying that he thinks the president may be a foreign operative. That has, the latter has never happened before in American history. And you think it would get at least equal attention, but it was played as a sort of one column story. Right. I, I just, it's just some of it is just staggering. And, you know, honestly, I've been doing this for a long time and I don't think it's ever going to change. I really don't. I don't think they'll ever hold themselves accountable. And, you know, of course, when I get questions and I'm out on the road giving a speech and it's a little media, I said, look, most of the people in the media, all of the people in the media are college graduates and almost all of them are coastal people. Well, if you get coastal college graduates, guess what you're going to end up with? A lot of Democrats. I mean, that's just the, the nature of what politics is today. <laughs> and, and to interrupt, if you get people whose primary goal is not maximizing income, I mean, we all like to have money. I'm glad I have as much money as I do. But if you went into journalism to make a lot of money, you were making a mistake. <laughs> and so that sort of funnels it to a different kind of people than become financiers. Yeah, it, it does. I, you know, I just want to jump in and I agree with almost everything uh, the, you said, Jim, I would, um, and I'm, he, he's made a mistake or two, but I give Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post great credit. He has held Trump accountable better than anyone. And yeah, occasionally he may try to be too even-handed and uh, do something that's not quite, that's a reach for Democrats. But, but if you look at, at, the, at, at that fact checker in the Washington Post, Jim, I think he's done a pretty darn good job. I think that, that, that um, yes, I think the, and I have not studied his, you know, long record as uh, carefully enough to be able to say, oh, yes, I entirely agree, or I differ on these five points. But I, I do think that, that there are ways in which the media have been trying to do something. And just in the last couple of weeks, I've seen more people willing to use the word lie. I think the New York Times has an almost religious uh, aversion to using that. But um, Brian Stelter, on, you know, on CNN has been coming out more and more saying, you know, th these are lies, not other people there, too. Um, can, I, can I do a sort of related pivot to ask you, James, a question that draws on something that Al was saying? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have more operative political experience than the rest of us uh, put together and, and squared purely as a matter of political advantage. I can't understand why none of today's Republicans has chosen to be Margaret Chase Smith, uh, as I was mentioning before. Margaret Chase Smith is known to history decades later for having finally stood up against Joe McCarthy. Why doesn't even one of these Republican senators think that would be a smart path for me? Whether or not it's a right path, it would be a smart path. Or why don't they do that? Right now, it's not a smart path. If you do it, you're going to lose a primary. It is that simple. Jeff Flake did it, and he couldn't even run, all right? I mean, and, and they're just corpses all around you. If people that have, like, spoken up, and then the, the backlash from Republican voters is so intense that, you know, you get in a meeting and say, this is uncomfortable. I should say something. It's going to hurt me in the general. And, and so I'm sitting in the meeting. I'm a Republican, James Carvin. I said, well, it might hurt you in the general, but it's going to kill you in the primary. And look, let's just get to the primary, and then we'll, you know, we'll go to plan B. And I mean, the reason is, it, and he instinctively knows that, and he keeps his base, or his, his base is now the Republican Party, about 85% of it, 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 that he can't. And, and he's got him in a terrible bind because he, you, you stay with him. It, it hurts you in the general, but if you do anything else, the voters come out. Look at Lindsey Graham. I mean, he's running significantly behind Trump in South Carolina because there's this feeling that among 
people like me, and I'm sure you and Al, that Lindsay's been very pliable in this and has said, you know, it's been all over the map. The, but they dislike him for that fact that he has been pliable and all over the map, and they, they, they're punishing him. There's a good chance Harrison could win that seat. And he might win it on third on people voting for Belso, or whatever his name is, a libertarian. They, they can't go to Lindsay. His numbers are not great with Republicans. But that's, that's what really drives this. Let me jump in and just uh, throw one, one thing, Jim. Uh, I, I spoke last week to a very, very close friend of Mitt Romney. Uh, who talks to Romney all the time. He said two things about Mitt today. He said, number one, he is ostracized by a lot of elements, including some of his colleagues in the Senate. I mean, literally ostracized. And number two, he said, every time I talk to him, he's never felt better. Hmm. He just is, he's looser. He just, and, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's what his grand grandchildren are going to learn one day, like Margaret Chase Smith have. Right. He's a, you know, the guy's worth a half a billion dollars. He's got real cred in his home state. And he was a presidential candidate. He was a governor. He's a he's in a lot different position than Joni Ernst or, or Tom Tillis. I mean, it's just he just is. And, and so, so how about if you think of people who are not going to run for another four years, or are retiring, or are independently rich, or are old? What, what leverage does? It, why don't they see? You know, twenty years from now, this is going to look better. Again, I'm, I'm, James, just if you were there advising him. Lamar Alexander being yes, exactly. number one. Yep. A- and what I hear, I think Albert, but that he, he agrees, but he doesn't want to hurt Mitch McConnell. Bush is scared to endorse <laughs> Biden, 43, because he's got a lot of friends as Senate Republicans. All right, I'm just, just telling you what, what, what is out there. And, I, and, it's, and it kind of makes some sense. But Lamar Alexander should be front and center on this. Even Bob Corker, who was pretty critical, but just hadn't said very much in retirement. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, because he's got interests and he's everybody wants to stay close to all their friends in the Senate. You know, and that's it's unfortunate. It, 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 and it, you can boil it down to it's actually a, a lack of courage. How much, what would it hurt? Lamar Alexander to say something. The guy's been governor of Tennessee. He's been president of the University of Tennessee. He's been United States Senate from Tennessee. He's retiring, and he doesn't he doesn't want to hurt his colleagues in the in the Senate. It's at the expense of telling the country that, well, of course, which Lamar Alexander knows. You know, at, at best we have a raving idiot in there that that slightly more. But it, it's might be somebody who doesn't have the interest in the United States at heart. Kind of hard to see how he does. So I mean, I think that's the that's the unsatisfying answer. Just to add to what James said, Jeff Flake and Mark Sanford were. This is not ideological. They were two of the more conservative members of the Senate and the House. Uh, I mean, ninety-eight percent, ninety-two percent conservative voting records, and they objected to Trump's uh, line. They objected to Trump's style. They objected to some of his policies and they both became absolutely, they, I mean, Sanford was defeated and Blake couldn't run. And every Republican takes that message. They are cowards. Yeah. And um, look, the, the, you know, the Ann Applebaum piece, which in, in Atlantic, which I read, mm-hmm. and, you know, always read everything that she writes in the cowardness. I mean, these, these guys are going to have a very hard time in history. I mean, people say, right, well, I defended Clinton, I defended Clinton on back to consensual sex. <laughs> to somebody of my personality, that is really not that big a deal. I mean, that didn't require a lot of prayerful consideration or anything. But <laughs> it really didn't. It was kind of a straight shot. But but at any rate, these, these guys have to know that history is going to close in on them. And it's got to be uncomfortable. And just say one other thought, you know, we are all people of, of mature years and you know, as you see the, the panorama of life go on, you think about what your own efforts going to amount to. It still astonishes me that people who know they're going to be judged by history later on, that they are behaving this way because it is, it is the, the Vichy Republicans. And I, I, I don't recall a spectacle like this in my time of observing or working in politics. Right. And now they're running away from Kuanan. How <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that much courage does that oh, make? It's just real lunacy. <laughs> hey, uh, Jim Fowles, before we bring Deb in, let me just ask one or two more quick questions about your uh, Atlantic piece. What are the other 
flaws of the political press, in, including the New York Times and the, the best ones, and certainly emphatically the case with cable news, is this sense of it's all, it's, it, it's, we're, we're all sports writers. Yep. It's all game. It's politics uh, at the uh, expense of substance. That really plays to Trump's advantage, doesn't it? Oh, it, it, it certainly does. I mean, and it's, it's I think, um, there was an illustration, I think I got it into this this piece that happened just when I was was writing it, of um, Biden was going out to make uh, give one of his speeches, and the questions yelled at him by the press scrum were all sort of tactical questions. How are you going to deal with the, the Hispanic vote? How are you going to address this issue, et cetera? And something I wrote about you know decades ago in my book, Breaking the News, was the gap between the interest that all of us, I mean, you know, the three of us and the people in our business of politics and the media have in the sports of politics, the tactics of politics, the, you know, the, the play and counterplay and all that, that is something we're interested in. And most voters are not. I think they view politics as if it's, um, you know, if you want to be entertained, you watch actual entertainment. If you want to watch sports, you watch, watch sports. And they, they care more about the results of, of politics. And James, you may remember, I did a a piece where I talked about the questions that that actual people asked Bill Clinton, which were all, how am I going to get this, you know, disability insurance, et cetera, versus what the press was asking him at press conferences. And the, the citizen questions were much more substantive. And I think that Trump has more fun dealing with just the tactics as opposed to anything about the realities of what he has done economically or internationally or all the rest. So again, it's a way of distracting attention from rendering judgments about how American government. Yes, it, but, you know, that's what Bill Clinton's famous line is. They want to make this about my past. I want to make it about your future. Uh, it works pretty well. I've got to tell you, yes, it works. <laughs> In fact, look, this is giving me a small example, but it's something I would not so, of course, everybody's panicked and polls. So I see, the, see this headline in Polit, uh, Politico, and it says uh, Trump narrows gap in Wisconsin. And I saw it was a Marquette Law School poll. I said, damn, that's a pretty good poll. Oh, God, what happened? Well, one poll was 49-44. The new one was 47-43. That's the same poll. <laughs> but they're going to get more clicks by Trump <laughs> this, that, that, that Trump is coming on strong in Wisconsin. I mean, they love any, if they're 30 polls that are good for Biden and one that's bad, I guarantee you they'll, they're going to go to the bad one every time. You know, that was what, what was that, Albert, the Susquehanna College poll in Pennsylvania? In Pennsylvania, right, right. It was the outlier, but it got much more attention. Listen, as a practitioner and a guilty practitioner sometimes, I, I confess, there's, a, there's an intellectual laziness uh, Jim Fallows to, to to playing sports reporter. It's a lot easier to write a story saying that Trump talked about the economy because he thinks it'll help him in the Midwest and you know with uh, suburban voters or left-handed Lithuanians or whatever than it is to say, hey, uh, here's what he's done, here's what he says, here's where they don't square, uh, and we do that all the time. I, I I agree, and partly it's you know as I was mentioning, and as we all know, it's something that that we like. Also, it's the field of expertise for most people in this business. And you know, if I hear about, I've never been, I've been once in my life to 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 the Emirates. I know nothing about the Emirates. And so if you make me say something twenty seconds from now about the new peace peace deal with Israel and the Emirates. I can tell you more about sort of the politics of it than I can about the actual Emirates because I haven't been there. And so it's natural, I think, for, for political reporters to bring everything onto their home terrain, which is why their best questions during the pandemic have been from public health reporters and medical reporters and science reporters as opposed to political reporters. Well, I agree. Jim, uh, James, one more question for uh, Jim, then let's bring Deb in. Yeah, I, wanna, I had a question for Deb, too. Oh, I'm I'm listening. Yeah. So, Deb, I, I have a question for you because you're one of the better observers of the human condition. Howard Stern said that the reality is is that Trump hates his supporters, and I thought maybe Howard. And I'm not a, I don't listen to Howard Stern, but but he's obviously a small guy. And then I saw this woman, this and big time Republican, Miss Tory or something, was a Homeland Security senior person became a never Trumper. And she said that when that COVID when it started, Trump said that's good because I don't have an excuse not to shake hands with these people. And I don't know, I, I 
I think Howard Stern had a real human insight. You, you, you have any just observing things? You have to think that has any validity? Um, yeah, I think it has a lot of validity. That you certainly don't see Trump hanging around with uh, anybody but his friends on the golf course or going out to drink a beer in the bar the way Bill Clinton did. I think there are these these moments of these visualizations of truth that come out occasionally. And I'm going to bring one up that you might not like, but really hit me back in the Clinton era when when Hillary made the comment about, I'm not going to stay home and bake cookies and be some little tiny boy yet. I do remember it well. No, it's fine. She said it. It's true. And for someone who was at that point staying home and and taking care of my kids, I, I just thought it felt like a gut punch. I just don't know. I think that in this case with Trump, that that was spot on. But I don't know if it's going to hit people the same way that that one Hillary comment hit me. Well, what about the deplorables, which, which really are, because in, in, in a lot of people do feel like, I mean, one of my big complaints with, you know, coastal urban urbanists, that's what I call these, is that they actually do talk to each other. And if somebody is raising kids, they give every, both well, every vapor that that's a life they chose that they don't particularly approve of. And I think that's a fair, and that's why I think to some extent, this, this kind of metropolitan triumphalism or urban arrogance is, is a real problem in parts of the Democratic Party. Now, I don't think that Joe Biden or Bill Clinton in any way uh, give off that. I don't even think, you know, President Obama did either. I mean, he had a couple of unfortunate, was trying to explain other people. He, he was a little more of a technocrat and, and an urbanist than, than, say, Clinton was, but I don't think he gave that off very much. But it, it is it is something that people are tuned to, and it's something that I think Democrats need to be very, very careful about. Deb Fallows, when you all traveled around the country on that single-engine plane for a couple of years at all of these communities, uh, you were really you were talking to the real people. Uh, and when we spoke six months ago, which is just as the pandemic was starting to surge, you know, you talked about how those communities weren't as polarized as our politics in Washington. There was a sense in some of those places of coming together. You've stayed in touch with some of those people during this terrible ordeal of the last six months. How do they view things now? Yes, we, we've tried really hard to stay in touch with all of our old buddies and make some new ones um, during the pandemic and have been doing it, you know, mostly by Zoom and by webinars and, and phone calls and everything else. And um, I've learned kind of more of the same. In the conversations that I'm in, um, they they still do not go toward national politics. I guess it's because, you know, who we are and what we are writing about, we're writing about things that are happening locally. But for example, I've been on calls with um, groups across South Dakota since March, twice a week. This is how many months now? You know, six months worth? And I feel like I've gotten to know a lot of South Dakotans. Um, they call in and talk about, about two things. One are kind of structured conversations about, about topical things. And lately it's about what do you do with the extra money left over from the CARES Act? We've got this money sitting out there. What are we supposed to do about it? So they'll bring in people from the state government and the legislatures and then people from the town saying, we, what, how can we spend this money? What's legal to do? And where is it most important to us? And just have a giant, you know, two hour talk about this. It, even in talks like that, that are going toward national issues, I, I have yet to hear a comment about the governor of South Dakota or the politics of South Dakota. Um, once I, kind of ventured into that territory a little bit. And I learned really quickly that I shouldn't go there. Um, and honestly, I don't know what the politics of the people who are on those calls for the last six months are. I could go look them up. But from what they're talking about, it's still very locally focused on 
here's what's going on here and here's our problems and here's how we're going to fix them. And it's happening with a more of a sense of practicality and urgency right now. Like we've got this money from the CARES Act that's left over. We've got problems here. So where should we spend it? It, it, So it's really interesting that, you know, I'm sure when they get off these calls and go talk to their friends, um, you get a lot more political, national political chit chat. But when it comes to doing the business of the state, it's it's not in the conversation. How about the pandemic? Because that state's been hit pretty hard per capita. Uh, do they talk about that? Yeah, and it's they they talk about it not so much in terms of um, well, they talk about it factually. At the beginning, it was we don't know there wasn't anybody in the state who had tested positive for COVID, and then there were a few, and then there were a few, and then there was Sturgis, and now it's building up. Um, but it it's not so much a talk of of COVID itself. It's it's the implications of what's happening in the towns. Like the businesses are having trouble because nobody's going outside to shop anymore. So how do we shore up the businesses in town? And it's um and it's gosh, we've got a lot of new people coming in from the cities, meaning Minneapolis and St. Paul, and they want to buy up the real estate here. And we have this tension between um, we can use their, we can use the revenue from these new people. We can use the the kind of uh, excitement and and new ideas and entrepreneurialism from the people who are coming to our towns, but we don't want to step on the toes of the people who are there with a coffee shop by saying, "Hey, somebody from Minneapolis wants to come in and and put in a new coffee shop." We don't want to hurt their feelings. How how do we deal with this? So it, it's really interesting that it's um even you know in the implications and spillover from these from covid it's about how do we deal th- with this in our own backyard so i find it i find it interesting that they don't want to talk politics with you why do you think that i would be surprised if they did want to talk politics with me because it's we've never found that in the now how many years jim six seven years that we've been reporting um, the issues that are more vital to what they can have agency about are local issues. They're going to go vote, but whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And they have to pay it. They are intent on paying attention to what they can have some control over or influence over or authority over. No. Okay. I, I mean, just with the election and the attention, it just, I, but I, I think that their silence, there's something about their silence that I find intriguing. Well, I guess it's also because I'm not I'm not asking the questions. I'm not going into the diner to ask those questions. And if you did, they would we've seen it on TV. There are opinions. It, and so this is a balance of, yeah, there are opinions, but boy, there's a lot of talk going on that's not about the national election. Uh, one observation about this. So I've seen Deb on these Zoom calls over the last six months where it's usually her with a couple dozen South Dakotans. They get together all the time. And what's interesting is that I think they're not talking among themselves about national politics. You know, these are not conversations Deb is running. This is her as one little tile of many dozen South Dakotans, and it's sort of not coming up among them. Right. It just, you know, I just have this theory. And of course, when somebody has a theory, they're always looking for evidence to buttress their theory. Right. But when people say about these Trump voters changing, all right, the way I explain to people, look, if LSU and Alabama play and Alabama wins, I don't become an Alabama fan, but I may not go to the trouble to go to the next game or I may not want to talk about it. So, you know, you have this conversation on Sunday, you avoid talking about it, all right? And and I think that what's happening in this loosening of, the, of Trump's support is is, yes, they still voted for him and there's still a lot of him they culturally identify with, but they're not, it, over a period of time, we'll see on election day, I, th- I think one of the big surprises here, and I'm, I'm going to be kind of public about it, is we're going to be surprised how much better Biden done has done in these hard red areas than 2016. And I, I do think that, that, that this is not going to come up. People say, what are these stupid dumb, they're going to tell us that they were wrong. I said, they're not going to do that. 
all right? <laughs> they're just not. But they're starting to soften. And that's my general overall view. That I, I, I do think we're going to be surprised in places like northern Wisconsin, western Pennsylvania. Even, you know, I see these polls in like Missouri. He's running at South Carolina. He's running at 51. You know, there's not the same thing as 2016 out there. I don't think anyway. That's my general view. Let me let me uh, jump in, uh, Jim or Deb, but, but but I was going to ask you, I know we've taken up more of your time than we promised. Uh, let's make the assumption, uh, which I make, James makes, and I hope uh, is a self-fulfilling prophecy, that Trump will lose on Election Day, and however much he tries to contest it, uh, it won't be credible, and he will depart this city on January the 20th. How long will it take us to get rid of this stain? <sighs> So, so, you know, how long do we have? There are, there are so many things to be undone. The, I I think we'll be surprised. Um, I I recognize James's point about how we might be surprised by the cultural resonance that Joe Biden as a candidate has in the kinds of some of the areas that went against Hillary Clinton four years ago. And that may be a a positive surprise on election day from Biden's perspective. I think there'll be a negative surprise for the U.S., of how much ground the U.S. has lost internationally in a way that may be hard to recover. You know, people know the U.S. dealings with the rest of the world are always in crisis. When I worked for Jimmy Carter, it was a crisis with NATO. Kennedy had a crisis with Charles de Gaulle. There's always a crisis. But I think there's been a sense that the U.S. has gone even more gravely awry than it did during the Iraq war or the Vietnam war in this last while. That's going to take a while to rebuild trust in foreign students uh, coming to the U.S., which I, I believe has been so valuable. The U.S. may will take a long time. We have an environmental things to uh, deal with. There's the reckoning with the systems of justice. And then there'll be in the places that we've been thinking about and we'll stay in touch with sort of rebuilding these the small businesses that have been so important to regional recovery and now have been the ones that have suffered most. And I, I hope that if there's some kind of Green New Deal, New New Deal, that it will concentrate a lot on trying to revive those. Deb, what is your view from South Dakota? Um, oh God, it all sounds so depressing. Um, but I, I think one optimistic thing is it as I've watched um what has happened you know in the last three and a half years I've seen people working really hard at um kind of scratching around in the dirt and building things up um in spite of the obstacles and it and it feels to me like there's just going to be a floodgate that the door opens and think okay we can we can really charge forward with a lot of the things that we've been trying to do. How do we keep kids in these rural areas? How do we upskill them with certificate programs and community colleges? It, things that are starting to happen right now, I think will feel um, like the doors have burst open and that they can move full speed ahead with the <laughs> more metaphors, with the wind at their backs to, to keep going. Um, so that that's my little optimistic view. I'm always trying to keep myself from not being too depressed. <laughs> so, Deb, you mentioned community colleges, and uh, I don't know if Jim remembers this, but I was teaching at Northern Virginia Community College. Came to one of the class, and I think I had a party. We came by the party and everything, and everybody enjoyed it. And I'm just, you know, for for whatever reason, I think these community colleges are really is a sort of go to place for a lot of people in this country. I really do. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if, if um, Joe Biden wins and Jen, Jill Biden goes back to her teaching at least one course a week, which may well happen um, at the community colleges, that, that it can raise up the profile um, like, you know, celebrity people and well-known people do for that, that, that will have a tremendous impact in moving them along. Uh, Completely agree, and I think it's you know, and I think meaningful. Yeah, yeah, it sure will. They are the engines of economic growth for for this country in the and the and the future. And we have cut back on resources uh, and at both the federal and state level, and that's a uh, that's really a crime. Listen, though, that was a great good note to end on. Unless Jim or Deb want to add anything else, but uh, there's not a lot to be uh, 
upbeat about, and Deb, you were upbeat, and that that makes me feel better. Um, I have I have one more upbeat thing to talk about, if I could. We've, you may. Yeah. So we've been also in touch with our friends in Erie, Pennsylvania, for a long time, and they are moving along with another initiative of how to. Um, engage the 10% of their population who are refugees and immigrants in their community to make them um, a more integral part of the community. And that it's beyond settling them into the routines of American life now. One thing that they had been doing before is around agriculture. And it, it's done two things. One, it's made them really happy. And two, it's enabled them to start small businesses and restaurants and local markets. Um, which are which gives them, of course, an economic foot head up or foot up, and it also introduces that into the culture of the town that is is you know really kind of ingraining itself in the town. The second effort that I just learned about has been happening just recently, and it's around the arts. That there's a regional arts uh, group in that part of Pennsylvania that has given grants that Erie in particular is applying towards the same population of refugees and immigrants to help them make their art and, and make it more accessible, put it into places where more people will see it and encourage them to build it into the context of the town so that it's not only here comes this foreign art, but here's, what we, here's how it reflects on where they've been living in Erie. And it's, you know, those two examples of agriculture and art and bringing a, a broader community is, is how America started. And it's, and it's how in this one microcosm of lots of refugees in a single place and immigrants is really blossoming and encouraged and encouraged. So that's a really upbeat note, I think. So I've been to Erie many times because I've worked in Pennsylvania a lot. And the richest guy in Erie is a mega Democratic donor right. named Tom Hagen. And he's, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars that he's given the area and built stuff. And he's a very modest man. He's kind of a good friend of mine. In fact, I'm, I'm going to call him after the show and tell him we, we, we talked about Erie a lot. And I, it's a very unique place in America. It's kind of isolated from the rest of Pennsylvania and it's kind of stuck between Buffalo and Cleveland. And that state park they have there, it's one of the, oh, the that's, that's a beautiful place. Yeah. Perth Island. Yeah, it's just ter- terrific. And, you know, that's a community that got take, taken some headshots, but, you know, seems to be in the fight and coming back pretty good. They have a great little uh, state college uh, there, too. And, uh, you know, this this conversation, Deb and Jim, encapsulates the problems with the media. I was going to ask Deb about Erie as a swing county, one that I was really, really watching. And she 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 uh, she instead talked about the substance, about what really was going on, about what really matters. Uh, So thank goodness we were able to listen to Deb rather than my shallowness. But uh, <laughs> anyway. y'all are great. Y'all are, Amer- y'all are American treasures. And I, I mean that. I mean that. You are. And it really are. I mean, you know, you have a deep understanding and, and interest and curiosity in the country. And we need more of that. Well, we sure do. We, you know, we, we promised or threatened to get you back on when you're on in March. Uh, and we're going to make that same vow if you'll do it. And maybe the time to do it is shortly after the election. And we'll talk about where we go from uh, here now, if Trump wins, I'll be doing it from New Zealand. But uh, <laughs> if, if not, we'll be doing it from here, uh, right by AU. Hey, Jim and Deb, thank you so much. It's an honor and pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. All right. Well, this was a good show. This was a good special edition of it, uh, and uh, you know, I'm glad we were able to do it. But I, I have a question. Go ahead. I, and I don't know the answer to it. Right, the, the range of possibilities is, I mean, we have to admit, there's some possibility that, that Trump replicates 2016, ekes out in that small electoral college victory while losing a popular vote. And it goes all the way up to Biden winning by 10. All right? So we know if Biden gets 290 electoral votes and the Democrats pick up two senators, it's just going to be a, a lot of the same stuff. It, what is the popular vote number that you think, and I don't know what it is, that you think would signify that Trump is gone, that, that you know, the 
country just wants to move away from this. This is a bit of a cop-out. It certainly has to be more than five. It doesn't have to be 10. Um, so it's kind of what you see. I think if he wins by, you know, seven points, and I think if that happens, you're going to pick up, uh, you know, a net of four or five senators at least, and you're going to probably pick up eight or 10 House seats. And, it'll be, and, you know, that'll be over 300 electoral votes. That'll be in keeping with Clinton's 96 win, uh, certainly with Obama's 08 win. That's decisive. Do I think that Trump will ever concede and, and uh, be civil about it? No, because that's not in his nature. But I, I, I think it'll be harder. My biggest worry then, though, after that, James, and it probably would take more than that to really do away with Trumpism, if you will, is that you're going to have Republicans who aren't, I think Joe Biden is either naive or he has to say this, but this idea they're going to get cooperation from Republicans, I'm I'm skeptical. I am too, but I I keep coming back that 2022 Senate map is tough. It is, it is. And it's going to have some, some, yeah. But that was just a great show. And I think we should keep our conversation going, which there is no right answer to, until we see it. What what would signify a clean break with this? Obviously, that's what the country needs more than anything else. Well, good. Let's do that every week. And let's go and let's and we'll get the fallows back after after the election, because I, I learned something every time we talk to them. Uh, oh, so, yeah. I so this too. was just make, great. Make me optimistic. Feels good. All right, James, thank you. You be safe. We'll we'll see you in about five days on this. And I want to thank everybody for listening to this special edition. And please continue to subscribe, rate, and review Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Give us a good a five-star review if you can. Uh, this is Al Hunt saying goodbye and be safe. <laughs>